0: If you have your Bible, you can turn to the first chapter of John. John chapter 1. We'll start at verse 35. Before we start, I want to share with you um, three lessons that I've learned from Christmas two thousand and twelve. I think these lessons will excite you. Uh, the first lesson is um, the locals say that the Amish Mafia isn't true. If you, if you were with us on December 23rd, I, uh, according to my wife, spent way too long talking about the Amish Mafia. I'm captivated by it, I can't help it. And I, I'd seen it, and I, it was just remarkable to me. Um, I did catch another episode, I'm going to go divergent because Rach is in the children's (laughs) shirts, Um, where they totally wrecked up a guy's buggy because he double-crossed them. I mean, that's crazy stuff in the Amish Mafia. Anyway, my parents live in Ephrata now, and so they're close to Lancaster. Um, And apparently the Lancaster newspapers and and things around there have have been really frustrated and upset with the Amish Mafia because apparently it's staged. I don't know. As far as I'm concerned, it's real because it's good TV. So le- lesson, lesson number one is that uh, the Amish Mafia apparently is not all uh, that it claims to be. Uh, lesson number two is that when you're in close quarters uh, with people who are sick, uh, nine times out of ten, you too will get sick. So I spent uh, a, a few days after Christmas all the way through the beginning of this week um, spiking a high fever and enjoying what may be my first ever go, go round with the flu, or at least something like this. So uh, maybe that means flu shots for everyone next year. I don't know, but it was, it was what it was. And lesson number three, um, in this lesson, I, try, I, uh, I imagine most of you probably have learned, is that no matter uh, how old you are uh, or what your chosen profession is, um, when you get extended time off and then have to enter back into the grind of things, it's just like the kids who get a holiday break and then have to go back to school, isn't it? I mean, we adults, we chastise our children. Oh, you don't know, you don't know. just get back to the grind. And inside, we're all maybe feeling it uh, worse than they are. Back to the, the grind of things, back to the daily routine, back to getting the kids to school and getting them back. Uh, and so I hope um, that you've entered back into this reality well, uh, and that uh, Spirit has given you the energy to do it. As my dad uh, informed me, when Christmas falls on a Tuesday, it's the biggest break, so it's the hardest return back to the, back to the reality of the world, and here we are. But I was thinking about that, um, school and kids going back to school, and if you read in the John book that we put together, uh, the, the overview as it flows in uh, to this week, uh, some of what we'll talk about this morning... Um, <clears throat> Will overlap that. Uh, this whole idea of how people are educated um, in our world, uh, in, in our modern education world, um, it's it's much more about teacher and classroom, right? And so, in, in modern education, uh, it's much more talking head information dispensed to those who uh, are sitting there, whether they <laughs> choose to receive it or not. You never know, uh, and and the gradually learn. And so this is our education system. And in fact, the church has has sort of picked it up. Um, And so when we think about this concept of discipleship, which is what we want to talk about this morning, uh, so often we can't get out of the concept of this modern educational paradigm of dispensing cognitive information. And we miss the bigger part of what it means to actually follow Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus. And so this is what we want to talk about this morning. Uh, We've aligned our study of John through these wonderful questions that Jesus asks, and uh, we get a great one this morning. This is John chapter 1, verse 35. I'll read, um, well, eventually we'll read all the way through 51. We may stop here and there. Uh, The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, John is is a difficult book to understand sometimes because you've got John the Baptist, uh, who is the John being referenced here, You've got John, the hypothetical author, um, uh, who's written the the book of John, who never refers to himself as John in the book, right? It's always the guy or sometimes the beloved disciple, uh, the one who Jesus loved. Um, Interesting way to reference yourself, uh, but this is the way that that John often chooses to to refer to himself. So uh, don't get confused by that. Uh, Nine times out of ten, if you hear the name John, it's John the Baptist, it's not John the disciple who's written the book. That would be the, uh, the one that Jesus loved the most, you know, the one that Jesus loved way more than the disciples and you. That's me, the guy writing the book here. So, The next day, John was there again with his two of his disciples, and again, the, the first chapter of, of John here has spoken a lot about John the Baptist and his ministry, and hopefully you've done uh, some of the reading on that. Um, he was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb... Of God. Now, there was uh, extra-biblical writing in that day and age that, um, that that talked about the Messiah in the context of lion and lamb. Uh, and so we, we talk about that sometimes still, and, and there's realities of that in the book of Revelation, also written by John. And so this idea that this lionish, conquering Messiah, who's also a lamb-like figure, uh, that brings the whole shepherd imagery, but also the... Uh, the peacefulness and ultimately the Isaiah 53 sacrifice, right? It's the Lamb that's sacrificed for the sins of the world. And so when John is walking with his disciples, he says, Look, the Lamb of God. We talked, uh, it was written, um, it's often been written, and I recorded it in the books, um, that, that John is always referred to as the one pointing. Did you read about that? Uh, and so Martin Luther. Uh, who I love, Martin Luther, is always writing about the finger of John. Uh, now, when my parents spoke about the finger of Adam, it was always, don't point, right? <laughs> it's rude. <laughs> we don't want to no anyone look at you pointing. And, and uh, just between you and me, when I talk about the finger of Jackson and Tyler, it's don't point, it's rude. But John is known by his finger. Uh, now, you may know plenty of people by their finger for many different reasons. Uh, this is because John is always pointing away from himself to Jesus. And here we have it again. He has his disciples who are following him, who are studying his teaching, who have given up their daily vocations to be followers of John, and he's saying, not me, him. So he's taking his disciples and pointing them away from himself, saying, go, go to this Jesus. So when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And turning around, Jesus said the following and asked. Now, this is great. Here we got our first question. What do you want? I love it. My first inclination is to read it uh, maybe like an Archie Bunker. Like, what do you want? You know? <laughs> Can you imagine that? Uh, as if Jesus would be that way. I don't know why that is. Maybe because I've grown up in the Philadelphia area, and we just are agitated by people who uh, bother us. I don't know. What do you want, right? probably a much better way to read into this is, what do you want? What is it in your heart that's moving you in my direction? Now, these are the very first words that are recorded of Jesus in the Gospel of John. What do you want? Uh, and the great uh, theologian, Rudolf Boltman has said, what better words to start with? What better words to be asked when we come to Jesus than what do you want? So what do they say? Uh, their answer is rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? And he says, come, and you will see. Jesus says, what do you want? And they answer it with a question. Don't people that, an- that uh, answer questions with questions irritate you? Does that bother you ever? What do you want? Well, where are you staying? <laughs> Great. But the question gives us deep insight into how they're answering Jesus' actual question. And I want to suggest to you this morning that if you are answering Jesus' question to you of what do you want with where are you staying, then you're answering it correctly. And this is why. Because it shows that these two disciples of John intend to leave what they've known to follow Jesus. Because where he's staying, they're going to stay. And so we can only understand this when we understand the first century world of discipleship. And so in the first century world of discipleship, if you were uh, a child, uh, if you were a male child, you would get um, invited into religious schools of study. And you would progress up these religious schools of study. and, And the best of the best, the really good students, they would advance up and would ultimately become what was called disciples of a rabbi. And so there were lots of them. Even the Apostle Paul, uh, we know, was a, was a bright student who rose up all the way into this level and became a student of Gamaliel, uh, the, the rabbi. And so what would happen in, the, in these schools of study is that these, these boys would actually leave their home and uh, what they knew and their uh, trades, if that was the case, and they would go live with the rabbi. So what you have sort of is a paradigm of the best students uh, living after the rabbi, as I call it. Uh, and so uh, in this reality, uh, two things come to, uh, to emerge for us. One is that study is centered on people, not on schools of thought. you catch that? Uh, most of us learn in schools of thought, right? So there's uh, this school of thought about economics and another school of thought about economics and a third school of thought about economics, and we say, well, I'm this. Uh, there's there's libertarians, there's republicans, there's conservative republicans, there's democrats, there's blue dog, Demo- there's, I'm from this school of thought. Well, in, in the ancient days, it wasn't about schools of thought, it was about the people that were professing the schools of thought, and in fact, you would go to be with them, not simply to learn their thinking, but to consume their living. So you weren't simply searching for right answers, You were looking for righteousness, if it makes sense. Because it it didn't just matter in in that day and age uh, what was the correct answer um, about divorce, for instance. It was, how does the rabbi interact with people who are struggling through this situation? How does he communicate the truth that he believes about this situation? Uh, How does does this... uh, work itself out in, in the real world, in real life. It wasn't just uh, issues of the coming Messiah, but how did, how did the, the rabbi order his life around the coming Messiah? Did it change how he did other things? It wasn't just about how he interpreted the Mosaic Law, but it was about how did, the, how did this have implications on the whole of his life? And that's the second thing, centered around a person. And it wasn't simply cognitive, it was holistic, because they believed that this affected the whole of the person, not just the mind. And so you can see how first century discipleship is way different than modern day education. And that's, there's nothing wrong with modern day education, but for us to understand what it means to follow Jesus simply in cognitive terms is to miss this idea that it's focused on a person and to miss this idea that it's focused on the whole of us. That the teachings of Jesus aren't simply to change our mind. But we need our mind changed, don't we? I do. Uh, Paul writes in in, uh, Romans chapter 12 that we need our minds renewed constantly. But I need my heart changed. And my soul. And the gospel has implications on my hands and on my feet and on my body. And so when we enter into this idea of following Jesus, of discipleship, it's much more first century Jewish rabbi-disciple than it is the cognitive pass of information. Because it's centered on a person. It's a journey with Jesus. And it's the beauty of the incarnation that he would come to live this in real life, in the flesh, in tangible realities, in our midst. So that it's not just this dispensing of law and information, but the whole ism of how it is to live this out and to be what God intends us to be. Uh, there are two stark realities to me in this. Uh, and the first um, is this. So in the, in the first century world of Jesus, um, as I said, only the best of the best advanced to these schools of discipleship. And the rest of the people, after they, you know, didn't pass the grade at wh- whichever level, went on and learned a trade, right? We've all learned trades, uh, whether we've gone to trade school or not. Uh, some of us are bankers, some of us um, are teachers, some of us are engineers. Uh, we do all kinds of different things. So in that day, maybe you would, be, you would become a fisherman uh, or a tent maker or a carpenter, Uh, And inevitably, what you would become is whatever your dad did, because you would apprentice with him. Now, here comes Jesus. And who do we know that he collects as his disciples? People who couldn't make the grade, right? The people who are already fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors And so what is the reality for us in this idea of discipleship is that it's never been about making a grade. It's never been about being good enough to get into the school of following Jesus. That anyone who desires to follow him can and is invited into it. He says to you, what do you want? And we say, where are you staying? We want to follow you. And he doesn't say, well, I saw your Hebrew test, and you don't know the Mosaic law very well, so no, this is ridiculous. Uh, he says, what do you want? And we say, where are you staying? And he doesn't say to us, well, I, I've seen who you are, and I know what you do. And mm, no, he says, come, I'll show you where I'm staying. This is Jesus as our rabbi. This is the one follow. And the second stark reality for, for me in this is that why do people come to Jesus? Why do people come to church? We come to find answers, don't we? Uh, we want to we figure things out logically sometimes. Sometimes we have deep hurts or struggles in our life. We want, we want those fixed or repaired or cared for. Sometimes there are big questions in the world that we can't figure out, and we, we want answers to this. And the reality is that if we come to Jesus uh, in the disposition of being takers or looking for answers to questions alone, we'll find those answers, but in very shallow ways. Have you experienced this ever? I have. But when we enter into following Jesus, the first century kind of way, where we actually say, I'm going I'm to change, and I'm going to follow you, and I'm going to listen, I'm going to observe, and I'm going to spend time with you, I'm going to be intimate with you. We begin to see those same answers have life, and flesh, and depth. You've been in a difficult situation, and you've had the well-meaning person come up to you and tell you the trite but correct answer. And if you're like me, you've worked up a half-smile and said thank you, and then muttered under your breath, they don't understand. The problem isn't that the answer isn't right. The problem is that the, the, the realness, the vigor, the vitality of the answer only comes when we're intimate with the rabbi, when we see it lived out, when we see it to the fullness, when we see it in flesh and blood, in tangible reality. We do need answers. We do need solutions. We do need care for our soul. We do need to find rest in all of these other things. And we can find them in shallow answers if we only come for answers. I imagine that when Jesus asked these two, what do you want, if they said to him, as uh, the rich young ruler did, well, what's the greatest of the law? He would have answered them with an answer. But their response to him was, where are you staying? This is the answer of discipleship. Jesus is one to be followed. It's not simply a school of thought. It's a person who's lived this and can live it through us. And it's not simply a cognitive exchange of ideas, but it's answers and realities that come to fullness of life When we walk with Jesus, have you been struggling? Has your connection to Jesus been shallow? Has it left you wanting? Might I suggest, when in the quietness of that moment, He asks you the question, What do you want? you find it in your heart to answer, Where are you staying? Where are you staying is the right answer to the question because it's the answer that gives us intimacy with Christ. And as we keep reading in this passage, we find that three things happen when we follow Jesus. When we become followers of Jesus and not just uh, searchers of answers. Uh, verse 39 Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, uh, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. Uh, it's difficult to understand exactly who these two disciples of John were. We know here that one of them was Andrew, because the text tells us. The other one it doesn't uh, directly mention. Uh, my best guess is that it's Philip, who we'll meet here in a second, uh, but others have suggested other things. Andrew was Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Peter is the Greek word petros, which means rock. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. I think that's who was with Andrew originally. He said to him, follow me. Here we go. And Philip, like Andrew... And Peter was from the town of Bethsaida. And Philip came. uh, Philip then found Nathanael and told him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, This is wonderful comic relief. There's actually some commentators who think this is in here simply to be funny. Uh, Nathanael says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Uh, Some of you probably are from Nazareth because it's awfully close to here. Um, So don't take it personally. Uh, And Philip's answer is this, and I love this. Well, come and see. So here you have these two disciples, if you uh, believe my hypothesis, Philip and Andrew, who have this uh, dynamic encounter with Jesus, answering his question, what do you want? And what we learn about them immediately is that they are compelled to go and find other people to enter into this relationship. And the way they do it is the same way that Jesus spoke to them. Jesus says, what do you want? They say, where are you staying? And what does he say? I'm staying over here? No, he says, come and see. And so what does Andrew do when he finds Peter? He says, come and see the one who we found. What does Philip do when he goes to Nathanael? And Nathanael says, well, this guy's from Nazareth. Nothing good can come from him. Just come and see. Come and see. See w- when we follow Jesus, the depth of what of what's happening in our life it compels us to become gatherers. I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced that we are all called to be gatherers. Now, listen to me. Um, there's this term in the church called evangelism, where um, it 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 makes you shudder, right? <laughs> Everyone's terrified of it. Where We've got to go share our faith with other people and convert them to Christianity and bring them in. I don't see any of that happening here. Now, this is very evangelistic because these people come into it. Don't, don't mishear me in saying that evangelism is incorrect. What I'm saying is, what these people say is, come see what I've seen. Now, you can do that. <laughs> and I can do that. The reality is that God has blessed some people with gifts of evangelism. Some people who, who have and will become great apologists for the Christian faith. We've got the Apostle Paul and people like him uh, who can go and interact with people and have these intimate encounters and explain to them the depths of Christian faith. And for many of us, that won't be us. But the call to follow Jesus, to be where he is, is always incumbent upon us to be gatherers. Because we can do this. We may not be apologists or great apologists, but we are called to be great martyreos. That's the Greek word for witness. And it's built in the idea of a life lived. Because when you're spending time with Jesus, the changes that are happening to you, the answers that you're not simply coming to find in your mind and shoot back out, but they're changing you because the depth of this encounter with Jesus, suddenly people are seeing this And you begin to say, come and see. Many of you have done that here. And that's why Hope Alliance, piece by piece, we grow together. And we're all called to do it. To people who are far from God, to people who are near to God, hey, hey, come and see what's happening. How Jesus is changing. This is what we're called to be as followers of Jesus. The second thing, and and this I love, gets uh, a little bit into the story of of Philip and Nathanael here. Uh, Verse 46 again. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Uh, Nathanael asked, and Philip said, come and see. You tell me. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, (laughs) he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Interesting. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip ever called you. And Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you. I saw you under the fig tree. But you, you will see greater things than that. Greater things than that. Isn't that the reality of following Jesus? We enter into this following of Jesus because we have this, this dynamic encounter with him. But the reality is, the time spent in following him and living with him and pursuing him in intimacy leads to even greater things, doesn't it? The promise of Jesus for us is that greater things are ahead. It always has been and always will be. Greater things more life, more discernment, more wisdom, more insight, more power for living. And ultimately, victory over this life and victory over death. Greater things are ahead for us. It's why we follow Jesus, because we're seeing it already in the now. Well, John uh, and Jesus himself, actually, as we'll see here in a moment, is actually uh, taking the story of Nathaniel and playing it on the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. Um, so if you, uh, if you can stick your finger here and you can flip to the book of Genesis. Um, and if you don't want to flip over, that's fine. I can read it here. Genesis 25, verse 19. Uh, most all of the New Testament, incidentally, is based largely and wholly on the Old Testament. So we find the, the fullness of meaning uh, in the Old. Genesis twenty five nineteen. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was uh, 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean, from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban, the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, And his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her. And she said, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. That sounds lovely. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. And Jacob means grasping my brother's heel. Uh, But what we understand is that grasping the heel was an ancient Hebrew idiom for being a liar, a deceiver. And so the name Jacob means deceiver. Now what does Jesus say to Nathanael when he first meets him? Oh, truly you are an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. So flip back to John. John chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus said, you believe because I told you, uh, I saw you under a fig tree. You will see greater things than that. Verse 51, and he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, this is bizarre imagery, right? Heaven will open and angels will ascend and descend on the Son of Man. Flip back to Genesis. This time go to Genesis chapter 28. Let me fill in the story a little bit so we don't have to read lots of Genesis together. Jacob and Esau come out. Esau comes first. To be the firstborn son uh, in the ancient world was to have the birthright of the father and to have the double inheritance that we talked about at the end of of December. Jacob is grasping the heel. Why? Because he wants to be the first one out of the womb. That's the imagery that we have here. But Esau, the red, hairy one, makes it out first, right? And so Jacob is is always after the birthright. And Rebekah, his mother, actually wants him to have the birthright too so she's aiding him and so he's always finding decept- trying to find a deceptive way to take this birthright and ultimately he's able to do it through the help of his mother. And he deceives his father Isaac and he secures the birthright and Esau is so ignited and fired up about this that he wants to kill him. He's going to kill him. He's going to get the birthright back and so uh, Rebecca concocts this idea that that Jacob should go off And find a wife. And while he's doing that, Esau's temper can cool down. And so Esau won't be able to kill him. And so Jacob goes off on this. He secures the blessing of his father through deception. He's a deceiver. He goes off to find this wife. But really what he's doing is running from his brother who's pursuing him and wants to kill him. And in Genesis chapter 28, we have this story, which uh, you may have heard of as Jacob's ladder. Ever heard that imagery before? Uh, Genesis 28.10 Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there he put it under his head and he lay down to sleep. Now this is awful. Can you imagine this? Being on the run and you know, being excited because you find a rock for a pillow. So he puts the rock under his head and he goes to sleep. Now, verse 12 He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to your land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it." The promise of greater things is not simply this idea that Jesus is going to even do greater miracles in the life. It's the promise of the return to the land of the Old Testament that that Jacob is having here, that in this possession of the birthright, God is pouring out his blessing on him, even in the midst of deception and saying the same promise that I gave to your father Isaac, which is the promise that I gave to your father Abraham, is the promise that I'm giving to you. Do you see that you can come to Jesus from any state? You can come grabbing the heel of the one in front of you. You can come deceiving your way any which way you have. And when you find Jesus, when you meet him, when you enter into that intimate relationship with Jesus, the full blessing of God is poured down on you. There are greater things ahead for us, for you, and for me. A promise of return to the land. The full blessing of God given to you. And we know that the Abrahamic covenant is not simply a promise of land, but that God would live with his people. And so the third thing and the final thing that we learn, when we follow Jesus in this way, when we answer the question, what do you want with where are you staying, we become gatherers of people. We just do. Uh, we, uh, We are possessing of greater things yet. We look forward to greater things. And the third thing is, we live in the presence of God. We live in the presence of God. Because the reality of this strange ascending and descending of angels on this uh, ladder of Jacob's dream is that God stands above it and says, I am here. The great revelation to Jacob when he woke up wasn't that, whoa, there are angels going up and down and this is crazy. It was that, wait a minute, surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. And so he takes the rock, which had been his pillow, and he builds an altar and says, this now will be called Beth El, Beit Elohim, the house of God. Your pillow becomes the house of God. And so it becomes then this, this stone, this Beth El stone, and we'll find it later on when we get to John chapter 4 and the argument about where do you worship becomes the precursor of a dwelling for God amongst his people. This stone that Jacob had laid on. This promise that God will be with his people. Now, read it into the imagery of John chapter 1. Because very clearly what Jesus is saying uh, in making this interesting statement to Nathaniel that in you is no deceit. He's immediately pulling into the Jacob story so that he can say, the greater things that you're going to see is angels and, and Angels ascending and descending from heaven onto the Son of Man. Jesus is the house of God. It's why uh, we have this interesting imagery in the the beginning of John chapter 1 that the flesh, uh, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us quite literally means pitched his tent in the camp. And the word, sometimes you may have heard it translated as tabernacle. And the idea is the imagery of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, where the actual tent for God was set up in this traveling community of Israelites, the house of God. Here comes Jesus to be the house of God. Angels are ascending and descending, not because of this strange vision that someday they're going to see or that one time Jacob saw. It's that God is present in the person of Jesus. So when you and I are intimate with Jesus, we're intimate What more could we want or need in this existence than the presence of God directly through Jesus? Do you see the imagery? Heaven is opened up, and there is now a complete bridge from heaven to earth, and his name is Jesus. And he says, what do you want? And if your answer is, where are you staying? The bridge is open for you. It's open for you. A second and underlying reality to that, and I think Jacob would have perceived this quite literally, is that the presence of God is is fully in Jesus and available to us, and Jesus lives in us, and the spirit of Christ in us, and so the presence of God is is right with us. Is this, this dramatic opening of a veil for a moment, so we can see behind the scenes. Have you ever done like a behind the scenes tour of something? Um, I, I don't know if I've ever, ever done that. I, I checked into doing it at the Peep Factory because that interests me, but they told me no. I don't know if it's because I'm too, too old or they really don't do it. Um, but you kind of get to see all the things that are happening behind the scenes, um, and you get an appreciation for what's going on. The imagery of Jacob's ladder and Bethel is he was fleeing for his life is a divine moment of God to say, listen, Jacob, you peel the layer back for a moment so you can know, I got this. I got it. And can I be so bold to suggest to you that even in this moment, perhaps God is peeling back a layer in your existence so that you know whatever the struggle is that you're facing, Whatever the difficulty that you're facing, whatever the anxiety that you're struggling through, whatever the depression that's bounding you, whatever the struggle in relationships, whatever the familial difficulty, whatever the physical ailment or illness, the struggle at work or without work, whatever it is, God is saying, I'm present. And angels are ascending and descending as ministering spirits in your midst. Could anything, Ever be more reassuring in the tumult, chaos, and brokenness of this world? And friends, it's why when Jesus asks us the question, What do you want? our right and only answer is, Where are you staying? Because to follow Jesus is not simply to come to the great answer that solves the questions of the world but to embrace the answer himself and through him gain the life that empowers us in this world and gives us life for eternity. Pray that it makes you a gatherer. I pray that it always puts your mind to hope for the greater things to come and not simply focus on the struggles of the now, And ultimately, I pray that you regularly have moments where God peels back the layer and says, here I am. I got this. As angels ascend and descend on Jesus, who is your intimate friend. Let's pray together.